0: I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Bera yazar Klazinski. Bera has a PhD in Molecular, Cell, and Developmental Biology, and she is currently Chief Science Officer for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. MAPS has been conducting human clinical trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD, and Bera described the results of the recent Phase three clinical studies that MAPS completed, which showed striking results for the treatment of severe PTSD. She also explained what PTSD is, who it tends to affect, and how it actually arises and what we know about the underlying biology. We also talked about the drug MDMA, informally known as ecstasy, and how it works in the brain and the types of subjective and biological effects it tends to have. We also discussed why MDMA appears to work so well in conjunction with psychotherapy for treating something like PTSD, and Barra also talked about how MAPS actually conducts these clinical trials and gets them off the ground even though they're a nonprofit without the resources of a large pharmaceutical company. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, and subscribe. We have the audio-only version, which is available in all major podcast directories, and a YouTube channel, which has video versions of each episode. Lastly, we have a Patreon page for the podcast, where you can become a supporting member and gain access to some special content for as little as $2 per month. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about DOCIST, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, Here's my conversation with Bera Yazar-Klaczynski. Bera Yazar-Klaczynski, thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, super excited to have you and talk about maps and some of the stuff that you guys are doing and related topics. Can we just start off with some very basic background for people? So who are you? what is MAPS for those that don't already know, and what do you actually do for them?
1: Yeah. Uh, So I'm currently the chief scientific officer, uh, and I handle anything related to science um, at MAPS. And uh, MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, And so MAPS is understandably a much easier acronym. It's a mouthful. Uh, So MAPS is a nonprofit tax exempt charity uh, that is a research and education organization. And uh, it's been around since 1985. So we recently celebrated our 35th anniversary uh, together. Um, And MAPS has uh, two wholly owned subsidiaries that uh, include MAPS Public Benefit Corporation and MAPS Europe BV in Europe. Uh, and so these subsidiaries are tasked with um, running the research uh, about um, of psychedelics, uh, various kinds. And uh, the overall goal is to demonstrate um, any risks as well as benefits of um, controlled substances that Uh, are actually beneficial for treating chronic psychiatric disorders.
0: Hmm. And what is your scientific background and why was that relevant to becoming the chief science officer at MAPS?
1: Um, I have a, um, my undergrad was in uh, biological sciences and I have a minor in drama and I have a PhD in molecular cell and developmental biology from um, University of California at Santa Cruz. So uh, I actually started working at MAPS right when I was finishing up my PhD dissertation. Uh, and I essentially brought what I learned uh, from grad school in terms of how to um, conduct research projects and, um, and infuse that into MAPS. Uh, so I was one of the uh, original people who, Um, ran all of the clinical trials uh, for MAPS for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, with various control substances, including MDMA uh, and LSD and um, observational studies with Ibogaine and also uh, with cannabis. Hmm.
0: I want to start off by just having you basically tell everyone the basic high-level results of your recent, recently announced uh, phase three trials with MDMA. Yeah. And before we get into too much detail about like all of the detail for those trials and, and how they were conducted and getting into the nitty gritty, I then wanna back up and kind of unpack PTSD and MDMA for people that aren't familiar with this illness and with that drug and how it works. So again, just starting, what was the recent result that you guys published?
1: Yeah, so um the recent result uh, came out in May 2021, uh, and we published in the um, well-known scientific journal Nature Medicine uh, on the results of our phase three clinical trial of MDMA-assisted therapy for treating uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. So the really top-line result was that um, the study was highly significant and um, And, uh, the, it was so significant that it was, uh, it would be described as statistically very persuasive, uh, from an efficacy standpoint. And, uh, also the safety data was really good too. Um, and we didn't uncover any, um, any new serious safety signals. It was also the largest study that's ever been conducted, uh, of MDMA assisted therapy. So 90 patients were treated, um, in the study and, uh, The fact that we were able to uh, do this in a multi-site clinical trial uh, spanning across the United States, Canada, and Israel, uh, and uh, collected data at 15 different clinical trial sites and oversaw the conduct of the study um, from the Public Benefit Corporation side uh, was really, really good. And MDMA has breakthrough therapy designation uh, from FDA for treatment of PTSD. So we benefit a lot from added attention and interaction with the US Food and Drug Administration.
0: Mm -hmm. What what is breakthrough designation? designation?
1: Um, So this is uh, one of the special programs that FDA has that enables um, sponsors to get additional support in terms of developing their clinical trial protocols uh, from the agency. And uh, we obtained it on the basis of comparing our um, phase two clinical trial data to the um, the data that was used for approval of Paxil and Zoloft for treatment of PTSD. And so, from the side by uh, from the historical comparison to our data, um, we had a much larger effect size, and hence mm-hmm. warranted um, additional attention
0: from mm, FDA. I see. I definitely want to get into comparisons between your results and sort of the, the standard treatments that have been used historically for PTSD. Can you briefly just talk about the patients in the trial? They all had PTSD. Were they all veterans? Did they all share some other characteristics or was it a mixed bag?
1: Um, It was a mixed bag because we really wanted our results to be as generalizable as possible to the real world. Um, uh, So PTSD patients often have a lot of other um, psychiatric diagnoses and medical diagnoses along with having PTSD because it's not just a mental health issue; it's also um, kind of a, a issue that affects the body because of chronic exposure to stress. And uh, you know, as we're coming out of you know a global health pandemic, um, many people can relate that um, chronic stress is not good, uh, and so. PTSD patients in the study uh, had very high levels of depression along with PTSD. And uh, they also had a history of um, alcohol or substance use. Uh, and um, some of them also had uh active mild alcohol or substance use uh, you know, coming into the study. And uh Uh, They also, on average, had um, experienced severe adverse childhood experiences uh, measured with the ACE score. And so this was a measure that was actually developed by Kaiser um, Permanente to monitor um, kind of the the medical impact of having adverse childhood experiences. Um, So we included that in order to help characterize our baseline demographics. Um, Overall, the, um, the patients were, um, majority white Caucasian, um, and 67% female.
0: I see. And then, so, so roughly speaking, does that match up with the general population that has PTSD?
1: Yeah. In general, um, female sex at birth is, uh, you know, associated, uh, with having a PTSD diagnosis, um. And, you know, typically people hear a lot about um, veterans with PTSD, but the majority of the population that has a PTSD diagnosis is actually females uh, who are, um, who are survivors of sexual assault.
0: Mm. Yeah, That and, was actually going to be my, my next question is any, yeah. some of the major cohorts of people that tend to have PTSD. So that's, that's the biggest one. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. I mean, we only had 13 veterans in our study um, and this is um, you know, of course it's only a a small subset of the overall population, but reflective, um, overall. And we also measured, um, socioeconomic factors, uh, related to, uh, the patients who are in our study or participants Mm -hmm. who are in our study. And, um, they had on average had, most of them had had some college, um, classes. So, uh, but not completed college degrees. Uh, their average age was like. 41. So, um, and then we also looked at the, like how long they had had uh, PTSD symptoms in our study and about 25% had had PTSD for 20 years or more. Um, And so the maximum was actually somebody who had had PTSD for 63 years. So uh, this is definitely a pretty highly traumatized population. And um, in order to be eligible for being randomized to MDMA or placebo, they also had to have severe PTSD, Mm -hmm. uh, at least severe PTSD.
0: And how would, you know, most people I think have at least a vague notion of what PTSD is or very basic idea. How would a psychiatrist define what PTSD is and what is diagnosable as PTSD and what are what are the most common constellation of symptoms that people with PTSD actually live with?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so PTSD, uh, is defined based off of, um, 20 different symptoms. Uh, so there's, uh, in general, there's a lot of, um, hyper arousal. Uh, so people are very jumpy and, um, you know, feel like, uh, they're always on high alert, always in fight or flight mode. Um, and uh, you know the, the diagnostic criteria for PTSD are clustered into different um, different symptom clusters. Uh, a really important one is actually functional impairment. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are you know their day-to-day lives are um, impacted by having um, PTSD symptoms. Uh, they have, um, you know, with the reason with the recent research that's coming out, it's primarily a disorder of, of memory. Um, and so and also comes along with having nightmares, flashbacks, um, you know, highly prevalent anxiety as a result of those things, um, poor sleep. Uh, and so all these criteria end up getting bundled together uh, to, to, come up with the PTSD diagnosis. And so if somebody walks into, you know, um, a clinician's office, they don't always get accurately diagnosed actually, because, Mm um, there's, there's some variability, like some people with PTSD will have more of a certain kind of symptom cluster, uh, than others. Um, there's also, um, a new subtype of PTSD that's been defined, uh, more recently. Uh, with the diagnostic and statistical manual version five, which is DSM five. Um, and this is called the dissociative subtype. So um, you know normally uh, most PTSD patients will will be in fight or flight mode and hyper-reactive. Um, but actually uh, with the dissociative subtype, they're often in, in the reverse category. So they're numb and hypo-aroused. Um, and essentially feeling dissociated from their environment, and um, feeling like things aren't real that are happening, uh, and that they're um, almost like shrouded in a blanket and not able to connect with their environment and their community.
0: And how do we how do we think about how much of a social Burden this is? Like how, how many people have it? How expensive is this to treat? How debilitating is it for people that have it?
1: Um, it's really debilitating. Uh, so it's a little bit challenging actually to calculate exactly what the social burden is, primarily because having PTSD also comes along with, um, you know, having uh, medical diagnoses that. Kind of outshine having the PTSD diagnosis in terms of claims, uh, medical claims for the insurance system, for example. So it definitely takes some um, some legwork to try to pull out all the cases where um, you know PTSD uh, diagnosis is involved in um, the claims for treatment, because often people prioritize having their medical diagnosis treated over their mental health diagnosis treated. Um, so that's a little complication in terms of, um, of speaking to the overall healthcare, um, system burden. Um, but in, in, in the case of PTSD, um, most people, uh, you know, after they get a diagnosis, uh, they end up going on, um, antidepressant medications that are first line treatments. Uh, So I had mentioned Paxil and Zoloft, Um, So they'll go on the first line treatments and try that for, um, you know, approximately 120, 130 days or so. And then quickly, um, they end up moving into trying other off-label treatments, um, which are second line um, and even third line. And so, um, you know, within that point of getting a diagnosis, half of them end up trying um, evidence-based treatments uh, and Then quickly move into off label treatments because the approved treatments are not working for the majority of the people. So it's really important to have other options.
0: So it's hard to calculate any specific level of social social burden, but this is something that's very severe for most people that have it. You're living with it for years or even decades. So it's very burdensome. How many? actual people have this is hundreds of th- in the USA? say is it hundreds of thousands is it millions
1: it's millions it's, um it, you know and this is pre-covid numbers mm-hmm. so um and you know i think the the prevalence estimates i had seen were about 8.6 million before covid uh and um you know usually like m- many people are exposed to trauma mm-hmm. and a subset of them end up developing ptsd uh and you know, and then that number was 8.6 million. But now since trauma exposure is so much even more prevalent and chronic stress exposure is even more prevalent because of the pandemic, it's likely that those numbers are going to go up. Um, And in our study, the average duration of PTSD symptoms was 14.1 years.
0: Wow. So millions of people have it have it for many years some people have it for many many years can we talk before we get into like brain stuff and and more of the hardcore biology behind this you mentioned that ptsd and i've heard this before is thought of in many cases as a disorder of memory i've heard it described as um the inability to unlearn or forget trauma say or something that happened to you such that you know when you have ptsd you basically have some terrible thing that happened to you that you are exposed to. And the typical person would effectively unlearn the emotional salience of that thing so you don't you don't forget what happened but you don't keep attaching the same level of emotional salience that you did in the moment when you experienced it the first time people with ptsd sort of just continue carrying that with them and so there's there's something going on that has to do with memory and forgetting and attaching or de um the emotional salience of something traumatic from the actual content of the memory. So what do we know? Can you just unpack that a little bit more for people? Is it really, should we think about PTSD as a memory issue?
1: Yeah. Um, so when you go to sleep at night, um, that's when your, your memories from the day are kind of consolidated and, and put into your long term storage. And so, um, we think that memory, memory consolidation uh, might be involved in uh, the development of PTSD. So if your memories are not consolidated and put into long-term storage, then they're still around (laughs) and still available to be experienced. Um, So that's one theory. Uh, And we've done some studies uh, that, you know, we've uh, funded some studies in rats uh, at UC Denver that, Uh, aimed to, you know, recapitulate, um, uh, you know, in a rat PTSD model, um, what that might entail. Um, And so um, and there's also been independent studies conducted in mice. And so it seems that the studies between rats and mice generated different results. And a very important caveat is that you mm. can't give rodents psychotherapy. So, wow. um, <laughs> um, so there's definitely some limitations in terms of translational studies that have mm-hmm. aimed to address this, but both the studies did find that MDMA was somehow in influencing, um, memory consolidation or reconsolidation, um, See, in is- models.
0: Is it fair to say, even if we're caricaturing a little bit, that maybe the basic idea here with this viewpoint is we're making memories all the time. Some of our memories get consolidated into long-term memory. So something happens to us, we remember it for a little while, and then we forget it. Something else happens, we remember it for a little while, and then it's consolidated into long-term memory. So we carry it with us for a long period of time. In the process that the brain, a healthy brain, uses to make something go from short-term to long-term memory. Is it accurate to say that that comes with a stripping away of some of the emotionality so that you're sort of just remembering the content, but you're not moved by it in the same way?
1: Yeah, I would say that's true. And so I really like the way you describe the emotional salience aspect of it. Um, and so the, uh, the other part of this is that, um, you know, sleep quality is is so poor uh, in in PTSD patients, and um, and I think there's uh, you know a number of treatments that have really tried to just improve upon sleep quality in order to see if it can have an effect on PTSD. And I think those have been marginally um, marginally successful. So there, you know, there's been a couple uh, treatments that ended up stalling in their development pipelines because the results just weren't as dramatic uh, Mm -hmm. as they needed to be in order to really create a a change. Um, There's another theory that um, I think is interesting that involves um, kind of hormonal regulation of, um, of stress. And so uh, there's this thing called the hypothalamic pituitary axis. um, And this is how your body kind of regulates like, homeostasis and how you're feeling and in general. Um, and so, uh, there's some really interesting, um, studies that have looked at, um, how the HPA axis, um, regulates stress through cortisol. And so in the context of PTSD, um, when somebody experiences stress, then, um, cortisol is expressed and it shuts down the fight or flight response, um, through, um, you know, converting you from being in the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system, primarily, um, signaling. And so this is the difference between fight or flight versus like vegetative contentment and digestion. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, in the context of PTSD, the cortisol, um, doesn't seem to function in the same way and is, um, and actually is too low. So then there isn't this negative feedback loop that tells the body, Hey, it's time Mm -hmm. to switch off your fight or flight mode. Um, and you can, you can relax now. Right. So then, um, there are, you know, there's, there's definitely some merit to looking at treatments that might be able to temporarily increase cortisol.
0: I see. So, so paradoxically at first, if I'm hearing you right, people with PTSD tend to have low cortisol levels. They have this low level of a stress hormone. You might intuitively think that they have high levels. Right. What you're saying is because their levels don't increase the way a normal person's do, it's sort of not flipping an off switch that normally gets flipped. Interesting. Okay. So PTSD, it's a stress disorder. People with PTSD basically have chronic stress to put it in very simple terms. Stress doesn't turn off because their hormone systems are out of whack. Perhaps that's related to this memory issue. Yeah. You've mentioned that the first line of defense is basically SSRIs. Can you explain why they're the first line of defense? How will they work and what SSRIs are and what they do?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, these studies were, were um, conducted by pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, at the time that there's some interesting history, they were actually having a hard time convincing clinicians and regulators that post-traumatic stress disorder was a thing. Um, and so um, there was, uh, luckily the VA uh, was aware of, of PTSD, uh, being a, a problem. And so had developed a clinical interview called the caps, the clinician administered PTSD scale in order to measure, um, changes in these symptoms. And so I think that, uh, that likely contributed to, to why people think of PTSD as primarily a veteran's disorder is because the VA actually developed mm. a way to measure it and really made a case for it. Um, when they, you know, created this measure. And so the pharmaceutical companies that were um, originally, like they had gotten Paxil and Zoloft approved as antidepressants. um, So they already had um, a bunch of data uh, on the safety and toxicology of the drugs. And so then PTSD was added on by doing um, several uh, phase three clinical trials uh, Mm -hmm. to their label. And so I think, you know, a big, limitation there was, um, you know, kind of distinguishing between depression versus PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, especially because there is so much overlap and comorbidity, like, you know, 80, depending on the study, like 85% of people who have PTSD also have depression Mm -hmm. In our study, it was even higher, like 90% of our sample also had depression. So it's like PTSD just doesn't exist in isolation. Um it's extremely difficult to get a homogenous PTSD population and it's also not generalizable. Um, they also suffer from chronic pain, which I didn't even mention until the, until now. So um, uh, it's really a systemic and community disorder. Um, anyway, so with the Paxil and Zoloft, they, they use the same measure that we actually use today um, to measure changes in PTSD symptom levels. And at the time, uh, the data looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. So um, they they were measuring their outcomes on a one week basis, which is a bit different than what we do. We measure it on a one month basis, um, and then they had you know a series you know of repeated measures um, throughout their studies, and these were twelve week clinical trials, um, and they did have you know decent p values, uh, which is Uh, your probability of incorrectly Mm -hmm. concluding that something works.
0: How big Uh, were, how big were the, um, I don't, I don't think this is a good podcast for talking about P values and effect sizes, but how big were the actual effects that were measured as significant?
1: Yeah. Um, they were small, uh, to medium and effects. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, there's, it's always challenging to compare across different kinds of clinical trial designs. Mm -hmm. Um, But just the magnitude of the effect is um, pretty agnostic to the design and the measure that you use Mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about something called effect size. Um, So based off of that, it was a small to medium effect. And with MDMA-assisted therapy, in comparison to placebo with therapy, um, the difference is a large effect.
0: Mm-hmm. So for a long time, the first line of defense has been SSRIs. They were sort of co-opted from their original intended use for depression and anxiety to be used for PTSD. And, and, and in some sense, that, that seems perfectly sensible, right? Like these yeah. things help with depression, and anxiety. There's overlap there. Um, can you talk a little bit about how SSRIs work? And then after that, we'll move into how MDMA works by comparison.
1: So um, it's actually funny that um, SSRIs were originally um, uh, named as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, and this was a result of a marketing exercise. So um, at the time that they were developed, they, um, there was this prevailing opinion that you, you didn't want to have drugs with multiple targets, uh, and those drugs were conventionally called um, dirty drugs because they were they weren't targeted. They didn't address a uh, hypo- hypothesized um, uh, you know imbalance in brain chemistry, um, and and hence they you know they couldn't be applied with like this almost surgical precision. And so then the the marketing teams at these companies came up with the idea of calling them selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, implying that they only target um, the inhibition of serotonin reuptake through this transporter, which essentially is a pump that pumps serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that has lots of different functions in the brain, um, involved with well a sense of well being, um, you know, digesting your food. So there's a lot of serotonin receptors in the gut. Um, anyway, serotonin is great, and so, <laughs> uh, but too much serotonin can also not be good. Um, if you Because it can like flood the system and then everything just kind of goes on the fritz. Um, so SSRIs, uh, um, they prevent the pump from emptying out um, this gap in between brain cells, which is called the synaptic cleft. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by blocking that, they're keeping the serotonin in that cleft and enabling the signaling in the brain between these neurons to continue uh, longer than what they normally would be signaling. Um, and that, um, was, you know, supposedly helpful with PTSD. Um, and of course, like these days, I think we're, um, we have a lot better tools to measure what's going on in the brain. Um, you know, there's EEG and brain imaging, um, and like functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, that looks at, different activity levels in the brain. But overall, um, these studies are not necessarily diagnostic. Like you can't just look at somebody's brain image and say, oh, I think they have depression or, Mm -hmm. oh, I think they have PTSD. But what you can say is that certain areas of the brain are not talking um, to other areas of the brain. Um, And you can, uh, if you can correlate that with some sort of behavioral output, then um, you can start to, um, to make some guesses uh, as to as to why that might be
0: so SSris typically a first line of defense for PTSD for depression people are generally familiar with them they know that they're out there many people have even tried them for for some period of time they are preventing the reuptake of serotonin so they're effectively increasing the level of serotonin tone in the brain you mentioned something that i didn't know about and I want to hear more about, which is the selective part. So you said that they were named this way for marketing purposes, but you implied that they're not actually selective for serotonin reuptake inhibition. Um, What else do they do?
1: Um, So I've heard, depending on which SSRI you're talking about, some of them have affinity for, um, for norepinephrine reuptake transporters, Uh, Some of them have affinity for dopamine reuptake transporters. Um, And so I think when uh, other companies uh, that were competitors of the original um, pharmaceutical sponsor companies picked up on this, it actually led to the development of um, all sorts of different kinds of reuptake inhibitors. So now we not only have SSRIs. We also have SNRIs, which is serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And we also have SDRIs, like serotonin dopamine reuptake inhibitors. Um, So there's uh, MDMA actually um, blocks all three of the monoamine um, reuptake inhibitors, which Mm. includes serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Um, So technically, if we're looking to put it into a class, um, we could say... MDMA is a SNDRI, <laughs> which is
0: So, a- so it's increasing the tone of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine.
1: Yeah. But we think that the, in humans, the dopamine effect is less.
0: I see. Okay. So normally, like one of my next questions was going to be about MDMA and neurotransmitters. I think a lot of people out there just sort of associate MDMA purely with serotonin. Like it's just dumping serotonin, but that's not quite accurate. It's, it's increasing serotonin levels, but it's also increasing these other neurotransmitters.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's just that the amount that it increases, it is the most for serotonin. And then the next amount that it increases is norepinephrine. And then the next is dopamine. Um, And then there's a couple other um, targets of SSRIs, like um, some of them, uh, uh, interact with the histamine, um, Mm. pathway and, uh, couple other things. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot of receptors and mm-hmm. all sorts of proteins in the brain that like totally fun- are functioning in various ways. And um, and I think that it gets complicated from there. So it doesn't really make for a good marketing pitch or even name, naming the drug.
0: <laughs> I see. So, so to summarize, let me make sure I got this. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, that name basically came from probably people sitting in a marketing room somewhere saying like, okay, it's, Doctors think it's bad when a drug has many targets. They think it's good when they're highly selective. What name can we give this that makes yes, it seem like exactly it's more it. selective? Yeah. So it's a terrible name. There's many different. <laughs> there's many different SSRIs. They mm-hmm. all increase serotonin levels by preventing reuptake, but they all, or mostly all, prevent other neurotransmitters from doing the same thing. And the the specifics of how each neurotransmitter is increased depends on the particular SSRI that you're talking about
1: that's right. And it also influences like their safety profile in terms mm-hmm. of drug interactions. So you, so I mentioned this first line versus second line versus third line treatment. So like half the people with a PTSD diagnosis are getting some form of medication. Um, and so uh, when doctors are, you know, see a person with PTSD though, they usually start with what's already approved by mm-hmm. FDA, but the other um, SSRIs haven't gone through this kind of approval process. And so then off-label usage is very common. Um, so the doctors will, you know, try anything really to, to try to help their patient understandably. Um, but what we're seeing is that half the patients are getting no medication. And so then what are they doing? Um, a, a pretty big hallmark of PTSD is actually avoiding that you even have a, have PTSD in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and also avoiding triggers. So for example, if something happened in, let's say I have PTSD and so I had a traumatic event and it involved the door being shut and then somebody came in and bad stuff happened. Then in my case, Anytime a door shuts, that would be a trigger for me. So I may choose to go live in the forest simply to avoid doors Mm. um, and then not be triggered by them. So uh, similarly, like I have a sense that like half the people who are getting no medication for their PTSD are either not aware that they have PTSD, even though they have a diagnosis, they've suppressed or are in denial of that. Um, And some of them are likely getting psychotherapy. And so with psychotherapy, uh, it's, it's a pretty rich area of, um, of study and has been um, studied a lot by the VA and other um, researchers uh, who are PTSD researchers. And so from all those studies, there's been kind of a subset of psychotherapies that have been uh, designated evidence-based. And so that means that the psychotherapy has been studied in a clinical trial and there's been measurable change. Um, among the PTSD patients and the amount of psychotherapy is typically depending on the kind of psychotherapy. It's around um, 18 hours total around this 12 week timeframe. And there's evidence out there that suggests like 90 minute sessions are better than 60 minute sessions. And these are pretty manualized. So there's like scripts and homework and the therapists are, you know, walking you through those. And it's pretty highly regimented. Um, But, and often it involves talking about what happened when you had your traumatic event. So um, this can actually be overwhelming for people. Um, And so then what ends up happening is that people are getting psychotherapy, but they're not um, able to stick with it to the point of like adhering to the way that it was um, validated with Mm -hmm. the manual. And so then, um, you know, from discussion with uh, other other therapists to treat patients with PTSD in their private practice, usually what happens is that people are, you know, feeling a little better after going through some form of psychotherapy, but, and then when they feel better, they don't, they're like, Hey doc, I feel better. I don't have to come back. And then when they, their symptoms get worse, they come back. So then people are in psychotherapy on and off for years at a time.
0: I see. So the the way the therapy is done is is very important. And it, it sounds like basically, you know, the patient the patient can think that they're cured when when they're actually not. Yeah. So sticking on MDMA for a little while. So we've mentioned that it can inhibit the re- uptake of serotonin and other neurotransmitters. What kind of drug is this? What class of drugs is it? And can you talk a little bit about, um, let's actually back into that from the subjective effects. So how would you sort of just describe the classic subjective effects of MDMA? And then how would you sort of start to relate those to what it what it's actually doing in the brain?
1: Yeah. So um, with MDMA, uh, you know, for because of all the neurotransmitter effects that we were just talking about, um, it's a, it is essentially like uh, turning on all of the faucets in the brain, and so um, these neurotransmitters are being released uh, from these little uh, vesicles or pouches uh, that hold the neurotransmitters in your brain cells, um, and the and then MDMA is binding to those vesicles to create that effect. Um, and kind of empty out the little pouches full of neurotransmitters. MDMA also primarily binds to um, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And also we talked about norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitors, but primarily serotonin. And then um, when it binds to it, it locks it in an open conformation. So now we have this like open um, uh, kind of floodgate uh, in the in the brain cell, and so then not only are the vesicles pumping out their neurotransmitters, but it's also flooding down the floodgate, going into the cleft in between the neurons, and then um, hitting receptors on the next neuron downstream, uh, and then it actually triggers a whole signaling cascade. So, um, and then also when MDMA binds to serotonin receptors, um, that pairs up with um receptors for oxytocin uh, and also um, vasopressin. So these are neurohormones that influence um your sense of well-being, um, social bonding, and uh also um uh, like vasopressin controls your sense of thirst. Um and so then uh now these neurohormones are flooding further downstream and that and then you know, creating, continuing to create this signaling cascade. Um, And there's, there's interesting stuff about oxytocin in that um, it's a hormone that is also released uh, when giving birth Mm -hmm. and nursing um, and, and also helps to kind of rewire the brain uh, of, for example, a new mother, because now instead of just being an independent agent, the new mother has to focus on their on their baby.
0: Mm. This is actually an important point. I, I've actually completely overlooked this until this moment. So normally, when people talk about this stuff, they think okay, MDMA makes you feel good, it makes you sociable, and they say aha, um, there's also oxytocin. And oxytocin is you know the bonding hormone. If if you want to caricature it, it's released at childbirth. It's important for mother child bonding and just general social bonding. And it makes for this nice story. But the piece I've always overlooked is that an important part of motherhood, like when a mother has a child, is that her brain literally becomes rewired so that her her behavior patterns change. And oxytocin is important for increasing. Tell me if this is fair. It's been a while since I've looked at the literature. But oxytocin actually modulates the amount of plasticity that can happen. So it's sort of like this permissive signal that allows that change to happen in the Mm. context of a mother and an infant. But now I'm connecting the dots to MDMA and what you guys are doing. And can, can you connect the dots for people? So what's yeah. the importance of like a plasticity hormone like this?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think uh, a really important point is that um, in general, mental health diagnoses, like how much of that is really because of a chemical imbalance um, versus uh, maybe like more kind of cognitive rigidity? Mm-hmm. Um and I think that people um develop these like thinking patterns um as they're growing you know so in adolescence usually um one's brain is um pretty malleable you're open to um, external influences. This is why people spend so much time raising their children in their, in their lives um, and put so much attention on it is because the, um, the brain, when it's, uh, when it's developing is highly plastic. And so then um, there's actually these critical periods uh, in brain development um, that close after adolescence. Mm-hmm. And so um and they, they're actually like not even like open until you become adolescent. And then when you're an adolescent, um, kind of a social reward learning critical period opens up. Um, and then uh, people are influenced by their environment. Like maybe they go off to college and they are further influenced. Um, and then, uh, then that period closes and then people start to kind of become adults And then as they get older and older, um, the way that they think about the world uh, becomes more rigid. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and there's a number of things about, um, you know, brain cells aging uh, that influence this. Like, you're not making as many new brain cells. Um, Your brain cells are more, um, they have a thicker coating on them. Um, So they're less likely to make new connections. Uh, and so then that plasticity just kind of like peters off as you get older and older. Um, with MDMA, there's a Nature publication by a great um, friend of mine uh, who's in my Turkish psychedelic club, um, and her name is Gildelan, and she's uh, at Johns Hopkins University. And so she was able to demonstrate in mice that MDMA was capable of um, reopening a critical period around social reward learning. Mm. And so now, instead of having that like cognitively inflexible, rigid, entrenched thought patterns that are also probably keeping you depressed and um, suffering from various mental health diagnoses, um, the brain is once again opened up for plasticity as if you were an adolescent. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once again open to intervention. And the rewiring is then. Um, not just limited to the context of the MDMA experience, but also remains open for a while
0: after. Mm-hmm. Is, so this, the- is this why it's so important that this is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy? Yes. the MDMA is creating this permissive signal. It's, it's altering neurotransmitter and neurohormone levels in the brain such that temporarily the brain is in a heightened state of plasticity, but if you don't actually direct that plasticity somewhere, nothing will really come of it.
1: Right. That's exactly right. And so, um, and this is really the key distinction between um, MDMA that's used in kind of a more recreational context uh, versus a therapeutic context. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then just that experience of like, um, of, the MDMA session itself, uh, in general, like it is an altered state. It's not causing hallucinations, but, um, people are, um, turning inward and having kind of, um, an experience in like, uh, with, um, eye shades on and listening to music that helped them to revisit, uh, what happened to them traumatically, um, but without the fear associated with it. And what we know from brain imaging um, studies uh, that we've done in um, PTSD patients is that um, normally the part of the brain that would be signaling um, associated with the fear um, signal when the memories are, are being revisited um, actually sh- uh, is signaling less. And then this correlates with, the reduction in PTSD symptoms that these folks are able to achieve. So that means that we actually not only just have a picture of the brain, but we're also able to see a change in the way that the brain is signaling um, that correlates with the treatment outcomes that we're measuring. And that's really exciting.
0: (laughs) I see. So it sounds like in terms of how this drug is administered in the context of these clinical trials, it's extremely different in terms of the context it's taken recreationally. And so instead of going out and moving around and, and being social, the person is actually lying quietly, presumably encouraged to reflect on whatever is the object of the psychotherapy and, and, and the, you know, the object of the trauma. And it, it almost sounded like you were saying this is similar in some ways to the setup of the psilocybin studies where you're lying down in a comfortable room, you have eye shades on. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about the actual setup for the MDMA yeah. administration?
1: Yeah. So um, we put a lot of effort into making um, the treatment rooms um, comfortable. It's not like a sterile hospital environment. We know that um, MDMA is, uh, you know, it would probably make any hospital room great, but <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's actually certain things you can do um, to make the environment more permissive um, for better oxytocin signaling. Uh, and when I gave birth, um, I noticed that the birthing rooms were, were doing similar things. So they mm. have low lighting, can little candle lights here and there, some music, sound of water. Um, and then, and like flowers, you know, these are all things that like one would say, oh, you know, if I was in a good hospital, I would actually probably have a lot of these nice things, but usually they reserve them for the birthing rooms. And so then the birth with that, it actually primes the, the brain and the system um, to be better at the oxytocin signaling part. Um, so we kind of take that approach. We have really good artwork. That's not triggering. Um, one time we had a black cat in a room and that was not good. So we had to take it out and then, (laughs) um, and then there's light music and low lighting and, um, comfortable beds. Uh, and then there's two, um, care providers, at least one is, um, fully licensed uh, for delivering psychotherapy um, according to the regulations that pertain to where they live and practice. Um, And then there's also a doctor uh, that uh, kind of oversees the administration of the MDMA. And um, we have in our sessions, we've tested a divided dosing paradigm. So there's an initial dose that's given after people do a pregnancy test and a urine drug test. Um, They get the initial dose of MDMA uh, with a glass of water. And then about an hour and a half or two hours later, they're given a half booster dose. Um, So this divided dosing regimen, we think um, actually promotes signaling of um, the first dose gets you onto the serotonin, mostly serotonin and norepinephrine. And then the second dose that's a half booster dose kind of serves to Get a little bit more dopamine signaling going. This is a hypothesis. I have not tested this directly, um, but this is kind of, um, our you think, model. But you think you think <laughs>
0: based the dosing, it, it appears to be effective. You don't yet know exactly why it is. Yeah,
1: but and, we have a number of like you know indirect things that we're piecing together. To yeah, happen. yeah.
0: What um what kind of doses are are you guys actually using in these studies?
1: Um. So. We tested a variety of doses in our phase two clinical trials. These were small pilot studies. And so we um we tried, you know, um a variety of low doses of MDMA as a control. So we tested inactive placebo, a sugar pill. Uh we also tested 25 milligrams of MDMA with this half booster on top, 30 milligrams of MDMA with this half booster on top, and 40 milligrams of MDMA with the half booster on top, and then uh, for the active group, for the therapeutically active doses, um, these were initially, um, studied all the way back in, um, you know, the seventies. And so, uh, mm-hmm. we revalidated the therapeutically active dose range of MDMA, uh, in our phase two studies and found that, um, 75 milligram to 125 milligram MDMA is therapeutically active, um, with a half booster on top. So,
0: gotcha so 75 to 125 you uh, said yeah and then half of that again a little yeah, bit later
1: that's right um is that
0: can you can you compare that so what someone might commonly take what what are people taking in a recreational setting more than that less than that
1: i think it's about that yeah mm-hmm. um it's it's comparable and then um the the half booster is also pretty common um in recreational <laughs> settings uh but when the, when the booster dose is not half, it actually can even push that dopamine, dopamine signaling even higher. Um, and then also in recreational context, some people tend to redose again a third time. And at that point, all the serotonin and norepinephrine is gone. and They're pretty much just on dopamine. Mm. So then it's, um, really just actualizing kind of like the stimulant types of effects, um, more than anything else.
0: I see. So, you're administering MDMA in this spaced way. You have this very comfortable setup. People are lying down. They're being encouraged to reflect on what they've presumably been talking about in psychotherapy for, for probably weeks leading up to the first dose. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about like the full, the full treatment paradigm? How many weeks of psychotherapy are we talking about?
1: Yeah. So um, we have 90-minute um, talk therapy sessions. There's three of those on an approximately weekly basis. Leading up to the MDMA session. And then the MDMA session takes about um, six to eight hours. And then um, the next morning, they have a talk therapy session to talk about what happened, like um, during their MDMA session. Uh, and then two weeks later, there's another talk therapy. And two weeks later, there's another talk therapy. So this is um this kind of Um, MDMA followed by three integrative sessions is repeated three times Mm. in the context of our phase three clinical trials. And we've tried it with two sessions as well. Um, so for some people, two sessions is enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and for some people it's not. And the thing with, um, severe PTSD is that, um, you know, the majority of the patients actually had multiple traumatic events. And so, um, kind of the theme during the MDMA experience is often, like processing, you know, um, one or two uh, traumatic events this is highly variable based on the individual. But mm-hmm. um, and then it's almost like peeling off layers of an onion. And yeah. so if you if you look at our, you
0: go our all the way down, our,
1: yeah, exactly. If you look at our data, um, three sessions was the best because people were able to really get down and and peel off multiple layers of the onion.
0: I see. One thing that was sort of interesting, interesting kind of parallel perhaps, is in some of the psilocybin trials that have been done, I recently had a guest named John Kostakopoulos on, who was one of the first participants in a psilocybin trial for alcoholism, and he was lucky enough to be in the non-placebo group, which means he got three spaced doses of psilocybin therapy sessions in the context of, you know, more psychotherapy. So broadly speaking, similar sort of basic idea to what you guys are doing, except psilocybin instead of MDMA and, and treating a different thing in this case, alcohol addiction. And the results work very well for him. And more or less what he said is, um, it worked well for the first dose, but he really feels that the second two are necessary to fully make a lasting impact. And curiously, um, Everyone that he talked to who was a study participant, um, it either worked for them, and in all cases it worked for them, they were they were the group that got three doses. And for the people where it didn't work as well or, or didn't work that much, mm-hmm. they all seemed to be the ones that only got one dose and then two doses of placebo. So at least between these two studies and some others, we could probably point to this yeah. um, recurrent dosing Regime seems to be crucially. It's not, it's really, it's truly not a one and done type of thing.
1: It's not a one and done thing. And it's not a magic pill. Mm -hmm. And people have to be um, open and motivated in order to, you know, go through all those screening procedures in order to get into the study. They need to be at the clinic on time. They, um, this is also often an issue for people with PTSD because they're just kind of avoiding that they have it. Right. And then they don't want to necessarily experience a trigger. So we've really had to um, you know, work with people who are who are motivated um to commit mm-hmm. to the study procedures. And so that's one of the things that is in our criteria that we've posted actually publicly on clinicaltrials.gov. So if people want to um read more about that, they can look up these studies there.
0: So um you know these these are very intensive trials, um, right? You're not just giving someone a pill. You're doing weeks and weeks of therapy. You're you you very methodically designed this whole setup, right? Giving them a certain number of doses in a certain way, all embedded in this context of psychotherapy for this very particular population. Um, can you talk, let's, let's kind of come back to the trials now, now that we've given people a background on MDMA and on PTSD and, and sort of unpack the full structure start to finish here. So let's just start with how, how long does it take to do a phase three trial like this and how much does it cost?
1: Yeah. So um, I think uh, some, some people would like to see much larger studies, but these trials are so intensive to set up. Um, and run that I feel like it it's a massive undertaking uh, with the number of people that we had to screen and in order to treat 90 and so our original plan um, was to do a hundred person study and we started it in um, November 2018 and leading up to that point when we launched the study uh, we had about um, two, Two years of regulatory interactions with FDA upfront. And so I mentioned that we had breakthrough therapy designation. So um, a big part of my role is actually writing the documents um, that make the case based off of research that's published uh, or that we have in hand um, to the regulatory agencies uh, that, you know. We think that this treatment is is worthy of study and that um, there's a lot of liter- scientific literature that forms the basis of these studies. Um, and so I mentioned MAPS has been around for 35 years and the toxicology program actually started 35 years ago. <laughs> so um, actually 36, but um, anyway. So, uh, you know, we initially got the, breakthrough therapy designation. And then we did a special protocol assessment with FDA. Um, And then that uh, is kind of like an insurance plan (laughs) for your ultimate FDA um, application for marketing, because it's a lot of input upfront from the agency on the design of the study and how you're going to analyze the data coming out of it. Um, And there's been some like more recent uh, kind of thoughts around how to handle the statistics of these clinical trials in a manner that is like not unduly biasing the analysis that we Mm -hmm. had to incorporate into how we analyze the data. So we, um, it gets quite complicated (laughs) in terms of statistics. It's not like a simple Mm -hmm, Um, mm t-test. And so all of that stuff happened over a period of like nine months or so. And then um, we went back and forth with FDA on like you know, six versions of the statistical analysis plan during that period. And finally resulted in uh, an an approved protocol uh, and stats plan. And so on that basis, then we like built the database and there's a lot of like extra quality measures that we built in to the database. Um, And we also had all these systems um, that support running the studies and also support um, generating A lot of documentation and files that um, overall help you to understand the integrity of the data, the qualifications of the people, the approvals that you have to get. And so let's talk about approvals for a minute because it's not just FDA that has to approve. Um, There's also um, institutional, there's a central um, independent review board that looks at the ethics and safety of of the human participants Um, for any clinical trial. So we had, because this was a multi-site study in three different countries, we had to interact with three different regulatory agencies, three different um, IRBs centrally. And then also each clinical trial site has its own IRB or they have to um, defer to the central IRB. So,
0: and I'm sure, I'm sure every step of this is just so, so much fun, right?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) we we had a, we had a mix of um, university sites and private practice sites because we want to we want to be able to measure if there's any difference right between a university site and a private practice site in terms of the ultimately resulting data. Luckily, we didn't see any difference um, in between sites uh, in the clinical trial, so that was really good. Um, And I didn't even mention that there's a lot of training that the the therapists have to go through Mm. in order to be ready to work on a study like this. Because
0: these are all people that have never done this before.
1: Yeah. These were people that had never, the majority of them had never um, delivered MDMA assisted therapy before. And so they had to go through pretty rigorous training on specifically on the method. We didn't train them on how to treat PTSD because- In general, these were either addiction researchers or people who are already like treating people with PTSD or addiction on average. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And then they would go through our training program and then they did a a small pilot study on a multi-site basis and treated one PTSD patient in that study. And then they were ready to work on this phase three study. So you can, you can appreciate that this was a very long multi-part process.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Um, and then DEA also has to approve each, um, uh, researcher, uh, at, um, the individual sites in the U S. Um, and then in, in Canada, you have to get a special permission, um, called a section 56 exemption, um, for the clinician to administer, Control
0: substance, and, and I'm guessing when you submit all of your paperwork, they're they're not getting an answer back to you the next day.
1: They're not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that um the 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 most questions that we got from a university IRB was like. 50 questions. Mm -hmm. And I, and I had to sit and answer all of those, um, with a lot of support from the team, Mm -hmm. but it was, uh, it was definitely constantly negotiating, justifying, negotiating, justifying, and then eventually we would get approval at every single spot. Mm -hmm. And so we also had to deal with, how do you contract with the universities for something like this? Mm -hmm. You have to get insurance to cover something like this. And it's, um, it was just, it's a huge undertaking. Hmm. And so for all those reasons, it's quite expensive. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what's, I mean, I, I I do think it's important to put a number on this just to give people a clear sense. Like to do this, how much money did you guys have to spend all in on this last phase three trial?
1: I mean, it kind of depends where you start counting, right? Because yeah. we well, wanted-
0: Order of magnitude.
1: Order of magnitude. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely on the order of like 15 million So, And that's not even counting all of your infrastructure costs that you have Mm -hmm. to develop because we have to, um, because we're working on um, preparing for a new drug application, um, we have to implement and test validate all the systems that we used Mm -hmm. um, in order to support the studies. And we have to audit the vendors to make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. Um, and so
0: this is is tens of millions of dollars.
1: Yeah. And then you're probably looking at when you look at total costs, it's more on the order of 30 million. Mm -hmm.
0: And then we, we didn't really talk about this yet, but where are you guys getting your funding from? And can you talk a little bit about why you, why maps has structured itself the way that it has?
1: Yeah. Um, so we have not received any grants from the government. Um, and Uh, the majority of the funding it's all philanthropic contributions um and the majority of the funding is from private donors some are from family foundations um and there was also a um an influence of cryptocurrencies uh when we were really trying to do our big push for um for raising the money in order to do the phase three trial because We didn't want to start the trial without knowing that we had the funding in hand in order to complete it. And so we had to do a big fundraising drive and we're very um, luckily (laughs) the recipients of some cryptocurrency donations that we were were able to use.
0: Yeah. Can you, um, you know, I contributed a little bit of Bitcoin when you guys were doing this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, How, how many people did you have giving you cryptocurrency and how, substance to how substantive was it um, in the end and, and what are your what, what are your thoughts on that looking back on how it turned out for you
1: yeah uh, unfortunately this is um, the development and fundraising part is not really in my domain but um, I can tell you that there was this pineapple fund that got announced on Reddit um, that was a really big influence um, we uh, we have a pretty strong social media team um, that was run by um, Bryce Montgomery, uh, and so he's been with Maps for ten years at this point, and I've been there for twelve years. <laughs> so we've had a lot of overlap. Um, anyway, he found the Pineapple Fund posting on on Reddit um, that somebody was going to donate an anonymous donor was going to donate um, millions of um, Bitcoin uh, through this Pineapple Fund, and was very secretive about their identity. We millions all, we of
0: know. like millions yeah. of bitcoins.
1: Like, I, I don't know. It was a lot of money, um, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> it equated to millions of dollars.
0: Millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then do you guys, how did you guys think about that given um, the volatility of Bitcoin? Did you sort of hold on to it for a while? We did, not,
1: we did not hold on to it because of the volatility. So we just quickly converted it into dollars and used it. <laughs> so um, in hindsight, um, if we had been able to hold on to it, it's possible that it would have amounted to even more.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow! So that was actually—I um, knew that you guys were doing this because I participated um, in my my own little way, but I yeah. never actually got the story on how how consequential it was. But it was
1: very consequential. Yeah. It enabled us to like be able to finish contracts with universities that mm-hmm. were going to do the work. You know, it was important.
0: Interesting. So you did these trials. We've talked about how the MDMA was administered and some of the basic structure of the trial and the psychotherapy. Can We we talked about in the beginning that they were very effective. You got really good results. Can you talk in more detail about what that exactly means? So you've got 90, I think you said 90 people going in with severe mm-hmm. P- PTSD. When you say that the trial was effective, what does that mean in terms of how many people came out with and without PTSD?
1: Yeah, so there's um, two ways of, of measuring how well a drug works. So one is efficacy, which is on the group level, um, and the other is effectiveness, which is on the individual level. So um, the, and you can, depending on what you pre-specify in terms of how you're going to do your analysis is like what you have to do at the end. And so we, we pre-specified that we thought there would be a significant um, group level average Difference um, after three sessions, and the endpoint was measured um, eighteen weeks after uh, randomization, and the randomization happened like after people went through a couple sessions of talk therapy. So it's a little bit of an enriched design. So we didn't want to just um, measure the results off of people who were um, also responding to talk therapy. Like the the drug had to be the significant um, determinant of what we're measuring in terms of the change, so, um, so it, it amounts to about two months after the third session. So we're not measuring afterglow soon after the MDMA or placebo session. We're measuring two months after, um, and then the participants who were in the phase three study then terminate from the study. They go back to their daily lives and then they're, um, currently coming back for a long-term follow-up. Um, and just because the trial took from like November, 2018 to, um, like August, 2020 to finish, then people are going to end up coming back for their long-term follow-up assessment, um, over a, a range of, um, months after. So it's like 12 to 24 months or so. Um, and we're measuring people both in the placebo group and in the MDMA group to see how they did. And then the placebo group are eligible for a crossover study with MDMA where they know they're going to get MDMA. Um, and that's also about to launch next week.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Can you give people a sense of the magnitude of results that, that you've seen so far?
1: Yeah. So, um, on average, uh, I don't know, can we use P values? <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah, but I, I think we shouldn't definitely not limit ourselves to that. For sure. Um, yeah, I'll,
1: I'll say it both ways. Yeah. yeah so the, um, the P-value that we got was less than 0. 0.0001. So this amounts to like a 1 in 10,000 chance of incorrectly uh, concluding that your trial is successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on an individual effectiveness level, um, we had 88% of the individual participants responded to treatment in the MDMA group. Um, and when you say
0: responded to treatment, does that mean they got better to some extent? What, what better, exactly does some, better that
1: mean? to some extent? Okay, yeah. So it's like a ten point change, um, and then the um, and then sixty seven percent of the MDMA participants actually didn't meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD anymore at the mm-hmm. end of the study. So that means for two thirds of the people in the MDMA group, um, they they didn't have. Um, enough of those symptoms to qualify for
0: Mm -hmm. a PTSD diagnosis. And, you know, just to be conservative, we probably wouldn't conclude that their PTSD is fully cured and that it can't come back or anything, but they effectively no longer have PTSD at that point.
1: Yeah. And just because of the way that the measure is designed, like they may have one or two symptoms, but in order to satisfy the diagnostic criteria, they have Mm -hmm. to have um, at least one symptom in each cluster.
0: Mm-hmm. And how how does how does this compare to effectiveness of the traditional first line treatments? So, if you were to give a large group of people the traditional first line treatments with psychotherapy, that must be have some level of effectiveness. How, how does it compare?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think that there's like a difference in terms of what you would see in a clinical trial versus what you see in the real world. Yeah, um, yeah. Because in based off of real world data with SSRIs that are approved for PTSD, 40 to 60% of people don't even have a little bit of a symptom change. Mm. Um, Whereas, and so it's a little bit hard to compare because we're basing our data off of clinical trials Mm -hmm. and then talking about how Mm -hmm. SSRIs are doing out in the real world. So what Um, you're saying is we don't have real world data yet. from
0: So presumably the real world data, it's just noisier. It's messier. People aren't going to, always use the proper protocol. So the effectiveness should go down somewhat, but the the levels that you're seeing are actually so high that even my understanding is that even if it goes down somewhat, it's still much better than most traditional treatments would be.
1: Yeah. And we had, um, after going through the three session package, um, five of the MDMA group, um, didn't respond in a manner that would like meet criteria for a treatment responder. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and that's out of, um, 46 people dosed with MDMA. So we think the non-response rate is probably around 10, 12%. Um, and then, uh, but it's still really good. You know, I think that, Mm -hmm. I think that is really the the important part is that if nothing else, like let's say in, in the real world, the effectiveness goes down, if nothing else, people are, interested in trying MDMA assisted therapy, and it's going to get them in the door. And I mentioned half of the people with PTSD aren't doing much in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. So at least it gets them in the door and then they're able to try it as a, as a, as a treatment in the toolbox. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to ask a little bit more about the past before we talk about the future. Can you talk a little bit about, so like you guys are obviously, you're doing these trials now. You've like just completed phase three. You've been working on this for a number of years now. When did MDMA come onto the scene, both in terms of it, uh, researchers being aware of it, and then how did it sort of seep into popular culture? Can you sort of connect the dots between the origin of MDMA, its, mm-hmm. its leakage into popular recreational culture, and then the origins of maps?
1: Yeah. So, um, MDMA was, uh, from what we know was first synthesized in 1912 by Merck. Um, they were, um, kind of doing like your standard, uh, medicinal chemistry, like trying, uh, different chemical structures and seeing, and seeing what they, um, what they got. Mm -hmm. And so then, uh, at the time it wasn't tested in humans. It was just kind of part of a library of compounds. Um, that were just generated that way. And then um, from from what we know, uh, uh, Alexander Shulgin um, synthesized MDMA, uh, I think in the sixties. And then um, before then the army actually started testing, uh, you know, MDA, which is a, a, a chemically related compound to MDMA. It's actually, a, um, an active metabolite of MDMA. So the army was doing these tests in the fifties, um, characterizing the, um, the lethal dose for 50% of the animals. So LD50, um, of like LSD and, um, MDMA and MDA in all sorts of different animals. And their original goal <laughs> was to, um, was to potentially use, um, psychedelics as like a kind of chemical warfare <laughs> or biological warfare. Um, and so uh, that's when you start hearing about like MKUltra and the CIA and all these things. So um, this actually like historically has created a lot of um, political baggage uh, that prevents the the, um, the Department of Defense from being open to studying psychedelics today uh, because just it didn't go well mm-hmm. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, and so subsequently, like after that, you know, Alexander Shulgin was um, he had a DEA license and he was synthesizing research chemicals under his DEA license. Um, and I believe there was another chemist also involved. I just can't recall his name, but he was working together with Shulgin and he was the first one to try MDMA. Hmm. Um, and so all that ha- was happening in, um, you know, the Berkeley, California area.
0: For people that don't know, can you just briefly talk a little bit about Alexander Shulgin and why he is interesting?
1: Yeah, he's, um, he's like, everybody likes to be called the grandfather of psychedelics. I think he's, he counts as a true grandfather of psychedelics. Um, <laughs> I won't ever be the grandfather of psychedelics, but um, anyway, so yeah, he's a, uh, he's a um, Russian uh, origin uh, chemist. It was very talented um, um, chemist. And so he and his wife uh, actually took it upon themselves to to try out a lot of these research chemicals that he was synthesizing. Um, And unfortunately he's passed away several years ago, Um, but he really, you know, he published uh, the synthetic routes on how to make these research chemicals um, and kind of generated a lot of prior art that prevented psychedelics uh, and the man- manufacture of them from being patented. So I, to me, this is really the most important contribution um, that these are, um, you know, these chemicals are, are um, how should I say this? They're, they're uh, similar chemically to... Um, compounds that are already present in a lot of natural sources like plants and fungi. Um, and so they're, uh, and our bodies are kind of naturally evolved to um, to respond um, to, um, you know, plant-based psychoactive materials uh, throughout evolution. And so a lot of indigenous people uh, were, were using plants and fungi uh, to alter their consciousness and as like rites of passage and ceremonial um, usages. And really important to acknowledge that this, you know, plant and fungi really were first, the use was first developed by indigenous and first peoples um, and native people. And so um, these methods of of ceremonial and ritualistic use were around for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. and then actually informed uh, the current therapeutic methods that uh, are in use today with MDMA and psilocybin. Um, So there's a lot of like um, breathing uh, exercises, uh, diaphragmatic breathing exercises. Uh, These were um, subsequently developed by Stanislav Grof into holotropic breathwork. So just by breathing, one can alter one's consciousness because of the existing um, brain neurotransmitters and chemicals that are induced in, in your body and your brain just by breathing in a different way. And I, it really does, again, remind me of birth because <laughs> just by breathing, you know, it's enabling life. Um, and so then uh, Shulgin really felt strongly that these chemicals should belong to the people and should never be a subject of a monopoly of a corporation. Mm-hmm. And so he published Tikal and Pikal, um that um that put it into the public domain in terms of how to how to create these chemicals and he did get in some trouble i think with dea when he did that <laughs> um uh, understandably so and i think subsequently he he did end up um giving up his dea license for manufacturing um but yeah i mean do you have anything to add uh to the Shulgin story
0: um i don't think i have too much more to add if you look closely you can see Uh, his two famous books on my bookshelf. But yeah, he he was a very interesting and very important person in this entire area of psychedelic medicine. As you said, he was this organic chemist who, if you just go read about the details of his life, was in a position where he could in an official capacity, synthesize drugs. And then he did a lot of testing on himself and his close friends. He documented all of that in terms of both the synthesis and how to create these things and the effects subjectively they had on himself, literally, in these two great books called PCOL and TCOL. They're very accessible. The first half, at least, the second half is literally an organic chemistry manual, but they're very wonderful stories that um, are very very readable, um, very relatable in many ways um, about the experiences that he and his wife and his cohort of interesting friends had when they were testing all of these things. He died just a few years ago. I actually met his wife at the last Maps conference yeah. a few years ago, and she's she's very old now, but she was she was there and and she was cognizant. and She gave a wonderful talk. Um, but if if you're interested in The history of psychedelic medicine, if you're interested in the chemistry of psychedelics, if you're interested in their subjective effects and where they come from, it's very difficult to imagine uh, how you would fully appreciate all of those things without looking at these two books, P.C.L. and T.C.L. Yeah.
1: So then um, MDMA was, uh, you know kind of highlighted as a result of that personal experimentation uh, by Shulgin and and his colleagues and friends. Um, And he introduced uh, Leo Zaff to MDMA. And Leo Zaff was a therapist in the Bay Area at the time. Um, So there there were, you know, hundreds of people who actually experienced MDMA in a therapeutic context when it was still a largely unknown chemical, Um, and it really helped to augment, um, their therapy process. And so there was couples therapy that was tested. They tried it for, um, treating alcohol use disorder and alcoholism, substance use disorders, depression, eating disorders, PTSD, anxiety, all sorts of stuff. And so, um, and then those data were, um, were published by George Greer and Requa Tolbert, uh, who were a couple that, um, that, ended up, you know, doing the research effort to kind of like synthesize and write about a lot of those anecdotal reports. These were not controlled clinical trials. Um, and so then, um, you know, the word kind of got out MDMA got out of the bag. Um, and then in, um, Dallas, Texas at the start club, uh, there was a, a marketing <laughs> exercise <laughs> that, um, led to mdma being renamed ecstasy uh and initially they were calling it adam and mda was called eve mm-hmm. uh because they're so um similar in chemical structure and some of the effects um and then everybody decided adam's not a great marketing name so they decided to go with ecstasy in terms of um you know characterizing it and making it sound more exciting however um, we have heard from a lot of our study participants who have PTSD that they say, I don't know why they call this ecstasy because um, it's actually, we think of MDMA as a kind of a non-specific amplifier of whatever um, feelings and experiences mm. are there. And this was actually recapitulated in um, some recent publications that really aimed at looking at this in, in larger data sets um, with um, pharmacology data. Combined, um, so really, it's like if somebody is experiencing mental health challenges, those challenges come to the forefront when they're under the influence. If somebody is largely happy and in a party environment, um, they tend to more often report being feeling more social, more outgoing. Mm.
0: So, so it's it's perhaps better to think about it as this emotional cognitive amplifier yeah. that just exaggerates what, whatever is there. And uh, yep. the history and the branding of this drug as ecstasy and the party drug is sort of a side effect of the fact that people were often taking it in that kind of context and they simply That's weren't right. choosing to take it in a different context. That's right. So let's talk a little bit now about the next steps in the future. So you've completed the phase three trial that just came out recently that you've told us about what are the next steps and what has to happen now before this can become an FDA, FDA approved medication. And what exactly does that mean? What what will doctors be able to do?
1: We're um, currently uh, doing a, a second phase three trial. Uh, And so we're about 35% enrolled. Um, And so one of the things I didn't mention with the first trial is that um, COVID happened <laughs> right when um, we finished enrollment? So luckily, we had completed the numbers that we had intended to enroll to meet the requirements of the protocol. And luckily, there wasn't a, an impact on the data of the um, of the COVID pandemic. Um, so now we've had to like really kind of it, it delayed the start of our second study to have a pandemic in the middle of it all um, because people were concerned about um, coming in to the clinical trial sites, understandably so. And we had to put in place a lot of risk mitigation efforts. We were having risk mitigation meetings every single week, documenting those, going back and forth with the FDA in terms of getting um, permission for some flexibility in terms of how to conduct the study. So the second trial is in place and running and enrolling with all of that. Um, and so our original projections have been impacted um, in terms of when we think we can get FDA approval. Um, you know, the COVID pandemic really threw us for a loop. We were not expecting that in our scenario planning, let me tell you. So, um, <laughs> and uh, so now we're thinking that um, we'll probably be able to finish up our full application to FDA, which will include our toxicology data from MDMA and the active metabolite MDA. Um, as well as the data from all the clinical trials that we've done, as well as um, pharmacology data that we're going to be summarizing based off of the literature that's already published. Um, We have to do a food effect study. So um, we're going to be comparing fasted versus fed um, kind of pharmacology and metabolism of MDMA. Um, and so we're writing that protocol now. So there's a number of studies that like, we're really still in the thick of it, um, in terms of generating the core data sets. Uh, and then, uh, we have to write the label, which is something that I'm working on, which is the little package insert that comes with the drug in the box (laughs) and we're designing the packaging and, and we completed manufacturing, um, our validation batches of MDMA. So we have. Um, quite a bit of MDMA, <laughs> over 10 kilos. Where do you um, get it?
0: I forgot to ask you, where does your MDMA actually come from?
1: Uh, it's manufactured under contract in the UK um, by um, co- a contract manufacturing lab. And they have to, of course, have lots of licenses and permissions. And then we import it into the United States for, um, for use in the clinical trials uh, and then it gets shipped out from the United States to the various locations in the world. And we're also enrolling um, for a European study right now um, mm. that's treated a couple of patients. So yeah, there's there's just a lot going on. <laughs> um, and we, we hope that this will be in clinics um, at the end of 2023.
0: End of 2023. And assuming that happens, what exactly is it going to mean for it to be in clinics? Will any licensed physician who is a... Psychiatrist or psychotherapist be able to choose to use this if they feel it's appropriate for a patient.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it seems like nothing we're doing is ever straightforward. So um, there's there's a lot of intricacies around uh, like how we envision this going out. So um, so FDA doesn't regulate psychotherapy. In fact, they don't even know about the outcomes that are possible with psychotherapy because they're focused on the drugs. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because this is essentially a new kind of therapy, they're called FDA is calling it an integrated multimodal therapy. Um, so MDMA, the effects of MDMA on its own are, um, kind of additive with the effects of the psychotherapy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, this is not an so novel in the sense that like ketamine is currently being um, tested in combination with psychotherapy as well. And, um, that we think that this actually improves the durability of the effects. Um, so, so there's that aspect, like we're having to explain psychotherapy to FDA and then the, um, we have to develop a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy that, um, will require that Um, Clinicians who are able to work um, with patients who are on MDMA have to go through training, and so we have an we have the world's largest MDMA therapy training program currently in progress. There's 300 clinicians are being um, trained in the current cohort, and about a third of them are um, people of color, and so there's a lot of diversity and inclusivity and um, equity work that we're um, currently engaged in and raising money for um, for patient access programs, et cetera. Um, and so the way we envision this is that there would be a prescribing physician doesn't have to be a psychiatrist and they would uh, do an initial assessment of like cardiovascular risk, um, to rule out underlying cardiac disease. Um, and there's a couple different spe- specific subtypes that are likely going to be, um, going to have a precautionary note in the label about that. Um, and then also uh, you know, we envision this as a, as a treatment that's administered by a team. So the team has to consist of like a physician, they, they would hold a DEA um, schedule two through five license, and then they have to go through our training in order to get the drug. And then they have to agree to work with appropriately trained and um, licensed providers um, and then FDA really wants us to uh, make sure that the providers are, are kind of, it's not just one person, that's their ideal. So the, we're just in the middle of like um, working out the specifics with FDA
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and we'll, we'll be working closely with them on that.
0: And what is the current scheduling of MDMA in the, in the US's drug scheduling system?
1: Yeah, so uh, MDMA is currently a Schedule 1 control substance, and like I said, it doesn't work for everyone, so it's really not a good idea to go off and try this on your own, Um, and we think these effects are really just possible in the context of therapy because of Mm -hmm. all the neurobiology we were talking about. Um, So that being said, uh, after FDA approves MDMA for having medical evidence of of efficacy and safety, uh, then... Um, it triggers a, a rescheduling mandate for DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And so um, that has to happen in 90 days. And so then um, we'll know if MDMA is going to end up in Schedule 2 or 3. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that based on the data that we have, Schedule 3 is more appropriate. Um, and then that influences the how you can do the commercial distribution, et cetera. Because there's different standards for Schedule 2 versus 3.
0: Gotcha. So currently it's Schedule 1, which is the most restrictive. Once you guys accomplish some of the the next steps, it will determine that it will definitely be rescheduled, but we don't know where it'll actually land other than it's not, not going to be Schedule 1 anymore. Right. Um, one of the things I probably should have asked about earlier is you know when you're trying to justify these studies to the FDA and to all of these agencies when you are you know presenting the case for this you presumably are talking a lot about safety and toxicology and you mentioned that a lot of toxicology studies had been done i know that there is a pretty rich and somewhat contentious history of the research done in terms of the potential toxic effects and potential side effects of MDMA both in experimental animals and in humans can you talk a little bit about MDMA's safety and toxicity profile, and what we what we know there.
1: Yeah, so um, there's de- depending on the intended clinical usage of of the drug that you're studying, um, there's different designs that are appropriate for an actual, you know, uh, registration level toxicology study, and so. Um, and then also these studies have to be conducted on um, following good laboratory practices, and that means that they're audited and they come with a lot of documentation to support the quality of the results. So um, with MDMA, originally Rick um, had funded uh, and, and overseen two toxicology studies where MDMA was administered once a day for 28 days. Um, and those studies helped us to kind of get an initial sense of like what dose of MDMA causes mortality in animals. Um, and it's unfortunate that animals have to be sacrificed in order to have these studies. And it's a required component of your new drug application for, for the regulatory approvals. Um, however, uh, you know, those studies were, um, were done so long ago, we actually had to repeat them. More recently, in the la- over the last couple of years, and I had to oversee it. Um, so we worked with uh, contract research labs, um, and they. Um, but we were we successfully negotiated with FDA that um, that we would focus on the neurotoxicity question, and so um, that was the part of the original studies that was inconclusive at the time. Mm. And so then that inconclusive finding fueled all these studies that were like, well, look, MDMA is possibly neurotoxic. Let's figure out how to study that. Oh my God, we're going to get it at these really high doses.
0: So just just to be clear, in like a while ago, in like the 80s and and 70s, in the 80s, there were some studies done in animals and toxicology to look at whether or not MDMA was neurotoxic, whether or not it killed brain cells. And you're saying that those studies were inconclusive.
1: They were inconclusive. And at the time, what they did find was that the amount of serotonin decreased um, after MDMA. So at the time that was a perfectly acceptable measure of neurotoxicity. But what we know now is that that's actually just about how MDMA works Mm -hmm. Um, it, because all that serotonin gets released and then MDMA actually inhibits the enzyme that allows you to make more serotonin. So it's like a, it's like a shut off valve. Mm -hmm. So if, that shutoff valve didn't exist, then you would actually be at ri- more at risk for serotonin syndrome mm. because there would just be more and more and more serotonin around. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually a good thing <laughs> um, in terms of how MDMA kind of is, has self-limiting effects.
0: I see. So they're originally doing the studies, giving animals, my understanding is a very high dose of MDMA, Yeah, uh, probably much higher than most reasonable people would actually take in a recreational setting. Um, And what they found was not clear evidence of neurotoxicity. They found a decrease in the amount of serotonin floating around the brains of these animals after they were given these high doses. Some people probably inferred that to mean that cells had died when in fact they probably didn't, or at the very least, you just don't know. Right. You guys, fast forward, you guys were doing Comparable studies more recently. What was the outcome of those? So,
1: with and with our dosing regimen, we're not giving MDMA every day and it's not a take home drug. Mm-hmm. So, um, we uh, made the case that we should we should have we should test it like a single dose drug where it's given one time and then the body has time to recover and then it's given again and then the body has time to recover. So, we we, um, did the 28 day studies with dosing on a once a week basis, which is more similar to our once a month basis for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and we also did expanded, um, neuro So we looked at, um, modern measures of neurotoxicity in all different kinds of stains, uh, that FDA had recommended us to, to do. Mm-hmm. And from those, um, you know, we, there was also this like one inconclusive finding from the very old studies where um, they used silver staining and the silver didn't like get into the, get into the brain tissue. Mm. And it was interpreted as, um, and it only happened in the MDMA animals. So it was interpreted as possibly being lesions. And everybody was like, oh my God, like lesions in the brain, that's bad. Um, and so then, um, we found no evidence of lesions with the better staining methods and the better methodology. Um, and so that was really the linchpin for like putting the neurotoxicity debate to bed, at least with this dosing regimen that we've mm-hmm. studied with mm-hmm. the once a week.
0: And can you, what, what were the doses you were using in these studies and what, what were the animals actually?
1: Yeah. So we, uh, we did this neurotoxicity study and, um, Sprague dolly rats and beagle dogs. And, um, and for both of those, like the dogs are more sensitive to MDMA at mm-hmm. higher doses. And we actually, unfortunately had, um, we went up to the maximum tolerated dose, which means some dogs died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it was around like uh, 12 milligram per kilogram MDMA or so. Um, and just for reference in humans, we're, There's a, it's challenging (laughs) to do the scaling between different species because their bodies, bodies body, yeah, it's nonlinear. And also, the metabolism of MDMA is nonlinear. And like,
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: just adding more MDMA doesn't necessarily mean that you're
0: there's actually, um, one of my other podcast episodes for those that are interested in this, this stuff, um, drug metabolism and, and scaling of bodies. Uh, there's a great book called Scale by Jeffrey West, who's a physicist. And in that book, and, and I had him unpack this anecdote in my podcast. But he tells this very tragic story um, from a long, long time ago where some researchers gave an elephant LSD. And so the question arises, how do you determine the correct dose for an elephant? And the naive notion for how you would dose an animal if it has a certain body size is you just multiply you know whatever the scaling factor is. So if the animal's twice as big as a human, you give it twice as much. Or if it's half as big, you give it half as much. And that's actually not the way that yeah. you dose drugs. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here. And he unpacks it in that episode. But what did you guys actually find when you gave these? these well, we, we
1: also found one more really important thing, which is that at least in rats, in the rat study, we found that um, there was a a difference in how much MDMA the animal could tolerate based off of whether they were housed together with another mm. animal or separately. Oh wow! So we had to really rely on the publications that had previously um, found this in order to be able to go high enough in the dose in order to have con- like conclusively put these, some of these toxicity concerns to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so with rats, you know, we were starting to get mortality at, um, 20 milligram per kilogram, for example, Mm -hmm. but then when they were housed separately, we were able to go up to a hundred milligram per kilogram. Hmm. It's a fivefold difference. And it's just from, you know, I mentioned MDMA, the effects of MDMA are highly context dependent. And I actually think that this is the reason why there's so much um, controversy in the scientific publications about the toxic effects of MDMA.
0: Wow. yeah I mean that that is I mean for those that aren't used to this type of uh, data uh, that's a very high difference a fivefold difference when you simply change whether or not the animals are in one context versus another in terms of whether or not it's toxic that's way higher than I would have guessed yeah but anyway
1: we also did the reproductive toxi- toxicity studies yeah, and yeah. Gen- genotoxicity studies we're getting ready to publish the genotoxicity studies. Mm-hmm. So they didn't find any evidence of, um, you know, MDMA on genotoxicity, which was great.
0: Uh, To to summarize one piece here that I may have missed. So you give these relatively high doses to some animals, high enough, you're giving them on purpose doses where some animals will will die. For the animals that don't die, you're then looking at evidence of cellular toxicity. and, And what's the basic takeaway in terms of what you saw in the animals that did not die?
1: Yeah, the basic takeaway was that um, we found like some evidence of muscle inflammation mm-hmm. um, in the rat study. That was, um, you know, I don't know if you if you're like familiar with like marathon runners, but they like if they if you exercise too much, it can cause inflammation in mm-hmm. the muscle tissue, and then that leads to aches and pains. So we found that um, at the height at the relatively human equivalent doses
2: mm-hmm.
1: um specifically in the in the soleus muscle um and a couple of other skeletal muscles but there wasn't anything in terms of um you know central nervous system toxicity we didn't find any evidence of that um and in terms of like peripheral uh, neurotoxicity that was like the only thing was that we found evidence of um white blood cell infiltration into skeletal muscle tissue leading to myofiber degeneration, which sounds horrible, but it's actually not that bad. Um, (laughs) um, And then we also, um, you know, there were definitely like um, behavioral signs and symptoms of the dose being high, too Mm -hmm, high mm -hmm. um, at the high doses. And so, uh, but I think with any drug, there's a tolerability limit. I mean, so I think um, that was not surprising.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, I guess the take-home was that that what you did find was sufficient to convince all of the relevant regulatory agencies that you could- Oh, we actually... don't know yet.
1: We just submitted this and we just oh. the studies. Oh, I see. So we don't know yet if they're going to be convinced, um, but we're going to ask them to do a, a, a review of the toxicology data before, before we complete the full submission of- mm-hmm. um,
0: Okay, well, Barry, you've been generous with your time and we're unfortunately running short. Before we go, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave people with? And can you just point people to where they would go if they want to contribute to the studies that MAPS is running?
1: Yeah, so um, MAPS being a nonprofit um, has a pretty easy way to, to donate to um, to MAPS studies. So it's maps.org slash donate. And then also we put all of our... Um, research publications, open access for free on our website on um, it's like maps.org resources papers. Um, and you can poke around in there. And there's, there's a lot of really good information um, on the maps website. We also have our treatment manual on the maps website under the MDMA assisted therapy studies. And we also have our, um, our investigators brochure uh, of MDMA. So that is like all the stuff I was talking about today is like summarized in this like pretty large document <laughs> that's like an encyclopedia on MDMA, and that's all free access. You can just go there and read it.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, I'll, I'll link to all this stuff in the description underneath the episode when it goes live this Friday. Um Barra, thanks again for your time. Uh, this was great. I'm glad that I could finally get in touch with with you and and kind of tell this story for people. Um, so thanks, thanks for coming on again, and I hope to talk to you guys soon in the future. Thank you
1: so much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Bye.